0: Hey, Natalie.
1: Hey, Raf. How's it going?
0: Yeah, pretty awesome. Great to see you. How's it going with you?
1: You too. I, I'm good. I'm really good. I have a really important question to ask you. Yeah. And it doesn't have to do with pineapple with pizza because everybody knows pineapple with pizza is thumbs down. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, so I wanted to know because you teach a lot of anatomy, what's your favorite anatomical word? Like the word that you just like saying because it's cool? You tell me yours and I'll tell you mine.
0: Favorite anatomical word. I don't know. I guess uh, what leaps into my mind is mitochondria. Okay. How about so, you?
1: My favorite anatomical term is pes anserinus. <laughs> <laughs> and I only remember that because it's hip and knee week here in the diploma, here in the diploma in Breathe Land. And I remember when I first trained in Pilates and I learned about it, I thought, I just love this word. I just want to say this word over and over in my head again. And now I'm doing it again because that's what's been in the lectures and the reviews. And I'm just can't, it's like an earworm, like I can't stop thinking about it. And I thought, oh, if I ever get a kitten, I'm going to name it peasant serenus.
0: <laughs> and so what, what is the peasant serenus, Natalie?
1: It is a common tendon of three muscles. Gracilis. Am I going to get this? I'm going to get this wrong. You need to say it. I'm going to get it wrong. No, no, you say it. Okay, okay. Uh, is it? Oh, shoot. Gracilis, Sartorius, and semi
0: 100% correct.
1: Oh. Gold star, not. And, <laughs> and is
0: it just the sound that you like, or is there something else that fascinates you about that structure?
1: Oh, I don't give a shit about the structure. I just like the way that it sounds. <laughs> I just, maybe it's because I like PEZ. Do you, do you know PEZ, the candy PEZ? Yeah, like a
0: PEZ dispenser. Yeah.
1: Yeah. I think that's probably what it is.
0: I like it for that reason as well, because it does make me think of PEZ dispensers whenever I, I, I read it or hear it. But I, I love it because it, it connects, it's the common tendon of three muscles that we usually think of as completely separate. The sartorius, which is a hip flexor, the gracilis, which is a hip adductor, and the hamstring, which is a hip extensor. Like completely different functions, you know the sartorius, which is an external rotator, and the the semitendinosus, which is an internal rotator of the hip. Like they just the the sartorius is an abductor as well, like and the, the gracilis is an adductor. Like these muscles just do wildly different things, and, and they yet, share the same tendon.
1: <laughs> <laughs> with a very cool name, might I add?
0: Yeah, with a very cool name. Yeah. Are you one of those, uh, I don't think you are one of those parents that's named all of their kids with the same first letter?
1: Uh -uh. Mm
0: Uh-uh. I'm not sure what the psychology of of that is, but it fascinates me.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, I, uh, no, I'm not, but I know exactly what you're talking about. I do know, I, there's, so there's a family that I grew up with uh, in Hawaii and she had, the lady had, she had many children. I want to say she had seven to 10 children. And yeah, that's right. She had seven to 10 children. I think she had 10 children and five of them were from a second marriage and all five of them were named with the letter J. Her husband, Hmm. her husband's name was a J name. And so she named her last five kids J names. Huh? Yeah.
0: All right. On to today's topic. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) So, um, we're going to talk about posture. And uh, posture—something is something we've talked about before on the, on the podcast—but uh, uh, I've recently changed my view on some aspects of of posture as it relates to Pilates. Uh, and so I wanted—and—and and, uh, you don't know, no. what my new view is.
1: <laughs> no, there. I don't have any spoiler alerts. This is going to be like my actual. What is it called? You know when. Um, you know, when you see YouTube or Instagram, oh, it'll be like, do like Pilates
0: teacher reacts.
1: Yes, <laughs> like that. It'll be like that. <laughs> okay, I'm ready. I'm ready for it.
0: Okay. Well, firstly, uh, you know, there's, I think there are there are a couple of really strongly Sort of beliefs that are strongly associated, I think, with Pilates around posture. One is that there's such a thing as good and bad posture, and 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 another is that posture, or closely related to that, is that you know bad posture can lead to you know dysfunction, whatever that is, uh, and you know, thus to pain and injury. And then finally, the belief that, the assumption, I guess, that we can change posture.
1: Well, you know, and by we, we mean Pilates can change Pilates, posture. Pilates, right.
0: Exercise can change posture. Sure. And that if we do change posture, another another assumption, that if we do change posture, that will change pain and injury and so on and so forth, right? So there's like there's kind of a stack of assumptions there. And if they're all true, then the whole thing works. And if any one or more of them are not true, then, like, for instance, even if say there is such a thing as good posture and posture. bad posture does cause pain, uh, but we can't change posture, it's like, well, it's not very useful to know <laughs> that that stuff. Um, but just say we can change it, but changing it doesn't change pain, well, that's also not that useful, you know, in the context of, of rehab. So, um, so. Each year in the diploma, when I give le- the lecture on, because we do a lecture on posture, when I give that lecture, I'll, every week when I do a lecture, I spend several hours going through the most recent literature and checking, like, okay, is this still the most up-to-date science on this topic? Uh, and in the posture lecture, the last couple of years, actually, I've missed uh, a couple of things because they're not actually what we we don't actually spend time on these things. They're not actually part of the lecture. So, what we what we do talk about in the in the posture uh, lecture of the diploma is the the research on the relationship between posture and pain, posture and injury, right? And what that literature pretty clearly shows is there's not really a good relationship between posture and pain, and uh, that intervention studies to uh, uh, to change posture don't change pain any more than intervention studies of just general exercise. Um, and I'll, I'll link to a couple of uh, studies in the show notes, but there's there's one, I think it's Macedo et al. I'll, I'll, I'm not sure if I've got the author right there, but it was from 2016 or, or so. And it was uh, based on Shirley Salmon's uh, movement impairment synd- sy- uh, syndromes sort of theory where basically they like did a 70 plus point assessment on people and Assess their glute strength versus their ab activation versus their hip flexor length versus their you know whatever else, and then you know a bespoke program to address all of those imbalances, versus just a few push-ups and sit-ups and squats and lunges you know generic program, and they found that both programs increased back improved back pain to the exact same degree, um, you know so it's a, and that, that's just one example, but there there are quite a few examples where you know, targeted interventions for posture or muscle activation or whatever help back pain, but they don't help it any more than non-targeted interventions. So, you know, I do just check up on that literature every year, and that doesn't seem to have changed, although, you know, the, there is a vast amount of literature out there, like millions, literally millions of studies on back pain, so it's pretty easy for me to miss things. <laughs> thing. But um, yeah, in tori- according to the latest systematic reviews, that seems to be the, the thing. But what I've what I've not checked up on over the last couple of years, because it's not actually part of what we teach, is... Can exercise change posture? Uh, and we don't really teach exercise to change posture because it's like, well, if if you're doing a diploma of clinical Pilates and you're thinking about rehabilitation and helping people with back pain and posture doesn't cause pain, it's like, well, who cares if you can change it? You know, so we don't even bother. But um, recently I... I looked into this literature and I think it was, I can't remember exactly why, but I think it was a a student asked me a question and I was like, huh, I haven't looked at any literature on that for a couple of years. so I don't want to just give an answer. Um, So I went and looked at it and I got, I raised my eyebrows quite a bit when I read, uh, I found like two systematic reviews and meta-analyses that have come out in the last uh, three and a half years since I last looked at this area that both found that, uh, exercise does change, uh, spinal posture. Um, yeah.
1: Wow. Okay. Now I want to know which exercises, how much, how often. All right. I don't know any of this. That's crazy.
0: Yeah. um, I'm going to
1: have to, I'm going to have to change I'm going to have to, yeah, look, I'm speechless. Keep going. <laughs> <laughs>
0: well, yeah, so the previous previous literature that I'd seen on this was mixed. Like there were there are multiple studies that said, that looked at, okay, can, you know, stretching your hip flexors reduce anterior pelvic tilt or can strengthening your abs reduce anterior pelvic tilt or whatever? And uh, pretty much most of those studies found, no, you can't or... Yes, you can, but to such a small degree, it doesn't make any practical difference. Or maybe you can, but we don't have enough participants in the study to be sure it wasn't just a fluke of, you know, measurement error or whatever. So really, I would say up until, you know, the last maybe four years, the literature has been either mixed or negative on on the answer to that question. But these two systematic reviews collectively uh, looked at... They looked at 10 studies each. They they didn't each look at the same 10 studies. One of these came out in 2019. That was uh, González Galvez et al. And one of them came out in 2022. Uh, And I'm going to butcher this, but it's uh, Dmitrievic um, et al. Uh, And both of them looked at uh, 10 studies that examined either uh, exercises for lumbar lordosis or exercises for thoracic kyphosis or both. And say they, so they didn't look at the same 10 studies. They had different inclusion criteria in each of these uh, reviews. And I would say, like, overall, I've updated my my view on this question of, like, can exercise change posture from, like, pretty likely no, it can't, to, like, yeah, probably can, and so I would say I'm now cautiously affirmative that I, I think yeah I would say I would err on the side of thinking yeah exercise probably can change spinal posture like uh, kyphosis and lordosis. Uh, I would say the the research is still not conclusive, but it does seem that the weight of evidence leans towards there being a uh, you know a a, a, a moderate-sized effect is what they both found, uh, like a standard mean difference of about 0.5, um, which is what they call a moderate effect size. Yeah, uh, which is something you definitely notice, right? And so, the 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 good things about the studies included in these meta-analyses were many of them evaluated posture by X-ray or MRI, mm-hmm. so they're quite accurate.
1: Sure. So it's not just um, people looking at other people. Right.
0: Which yeah. we know is not accurate. Sure. Some of them used a flexible rule, which I'm not sure of the accuracy of a flexible rule. It's like, um, uh, it's like something they use in, in, for seamstresses or tailoring. They, they Basically, it's a lead ruler that they put on your back and it kind of bends and conforms to the shape of your spine. And then you take that off and it keeps its shape and you just trace around it on a piece of paper. And that tells you the angle and you just use a in some kind of protractor or whatever to measure the piece of paper and go, okay, this is what the angle is. So I'm not sure how accurate that is, but but several of the included studies used X-ray or MRI, um, which is highly accurate. So, uh, you know, so that does give me, you know, a reasonable degree of confidence that they actually measured what they said they were measuring. Um, Something in there are a couple of weaknesses of all of these studies, and I'll get into what like what the stud, exactly what they did in the studies in a minute, but a couple of weaknesses in all of them was lack of blinding and uh, lack of an active control group. So in all of these studies, they would typically uh, divide people, the participants into two groups, and most of them had like 50 or even up to 70% women. So there's more women than men in these studies. Uh, they'll divide them into two groups. One group would get the exercise intervention. So typically a combination of stretching and strengthening um, to reduce lumbar lordosis or reduce thoracic kyphosis. And the other group typically got nothing, right? So stay home. Sometimes the control group, you know, the other group, they got like uh, ultrasound and TENS at the physiotherapist <laughs> or, you know, but typically they they didn't get any kind of exercise. So it wasn't like one type of exercise versus a different type of exercise. It was this targeted exercise, stretching and strengthening typically versus some non-exercise intervention. Uh, and so what, you know, the, the reason I, you know, I feel a little bit, that sort of gives me a little bit less confidence in, you know, these results is that well we did this targeted exercise and posture changed but what if we just did like okay so we'd strengthen the back and stretch the front right and then the kyphosis reduced okay great but what if we'd stretched, strengthen the front and stretch the back as well you know in just done a general exercise program like just strength, strengthen and stretched everything to what extent if at all would posture have changed in that situation well, we don't know so we don't know whether it was the particular stretches and exercises that we did that helped or just the fact that we did some kind of exercise, you know, because all we compared it to was like sitting on your sofa <laughs> for eight weeks or whatever. So, um, or, you know, having passive like electric electrical stimulation of your sore back or whatever. Um, so, yeah, so there's lack of an active control group. And we also don't know, like, because of that lack lack of an active control group, Okay, so people do um, uh, like thoracic strengthening, you know, strengthening the back muscles and stretching the abs, for example, for thoracic well, how mu- And then their thoracic kyphosis changes. Well, how much of that is because of changes in muscle strength and flexibility? And how much of it is because they've actually just been practicing straightening their spine? Like it's a, a more of a motor skill thing where we don't actually need to necessarily strengthen the muscles. We could just like put a book on their head and say, stand up straight and, and that would work just as well. And we don't know the answer to that question. And we could have answered that question by both of those questions, by doing a control group that did the same exercises, the same thoracic strengthening exercises, you know, uh, abdominal stretching exercises, but just did a much lighter, gentler version that wouldn't have had a physiological effect, right? So it's such a light load that it wouldn't actually strengthen your, your back muscles, but you're doing the same movement, the same number of reps, the same amount of time, and so you're getting the same practice of straightening your back all of those times. And so then we could have teased out, okay, to what extent was it the strengthening, and to what extent was it just like a reminder to sit up straight sort of thing? Um, yeah, so we don't know the answer to that. And the second the second thing, and this is probably a bigger kind of concern for me, is the lack of Blinding of the outcome assessors. So at the end of the study, when they're assessing, like, oh, who improved and who didn't, or whatever, there they didn't. Most of them didn't blind the person doing the measurement at the end of the trial. So I was like, oh, they knew this person was in the exercise group and this person was in the control group, and and so that really sort of can introduce significant bias into the process. But yeah. You know, Notwithstanding both of those things, I think overall these are reasonably well done studies and we probably should have, you know, moderate confidence that they you know, they give us an accurate picture. So I think, you know, I would say I'm like 60, 40 at the moment, exercise can change posture.
1: So in terms of the difference, was it when they looked at determining if there was a change, was it just, you know, for instance, like people got taller? Because that was something that was a couple of people told me. One of them was my Pilates teacher a long time ago, and the other was a client who swore up and down that, you know, after six months of Pilates, when she went into the doctor next, she was half an inch taller.
0: Well, that would make sense. Um, So how they typically measured uh, the the kyphosis or the lordosis when they used X-ray was they take an X-ray from the side in standing, and then they would basically draw a line, a straight line along the top of, say, if we're talking about the, the the lumbar lordosis, along the top of the L1 vertebra, right, just a straight line and extend that backwards behind the body. And then at the bottom of the L5 vertebra, draw a straight line across the bottom of that and extend it. And where those two lines meet, there'll be some kind of an angle, right, and that's called the lumbar lordotic angle. And they basically, you know, the bigger your angle, the more of a lordosis you have. And in most of these studies, they say like 30 degrees is, quote, normal and above 40 degrees is considered hyperlordotic. Um, I don't know. I did dig around and I couldn't find where they found that 40 degree number from, as far as I can tell, they just made it up. But um, what they did find consistently was that the the, the lumbar lordotic angle decreased uh, as a result of these programs. Um, and so, well, if the line, be- if the, la- the line of the lumbar spine becomes more straight and less curved, well, yeah, you would get taller.
1: And it has nothing to do with, um, increased mood or confidence because you've been doing exercise for a good number. Right.
0: Well, that's the thing. Know? And that's why we needed an active control group right, who heard. did the ex- who would have done exercises, but just not those particular exercises. Yeah. Um, and so we don't know, we don't know that. Um, And so, you know, we we don't have an intervention where someone just went and did like a standard general general exercise program, some push-ups, some sit-ups, some squats and lunges with no particular sort of postural correcting, you know, uh, focus. And then, but measure their lumbar lordosis before and after. Like we don't have that study as far as I'm aware or none of it. That wasn't in any of these meta-analyses. So, yeah, I don't know. It might just be like just getting moving is all you need to do. (laughs) Or it might be. Uh, But what they did find, uh, and particularly in the first meta-analysis by Gonzalez-Galvez et al., um, they actually found uh, that there were some studies, most of the studies looked at a combination of strengthening plus stretching. One study, though, just looked at stretching, and one just looked at strengthening. What they found was all of the studies that had the combination of strengthening and stretching found a positive result like they they made a change the one that just did stretching they didn't measure any difference before and after whereas the strengthening one did measure a difference and so what they kind of concluded or they said in their discussion was like probably stretching by itself is not sufficient to to change posture but we i mean it's a very small data pool here um but the combination of strengthening and stretching does seem to be enough and possibly strengthening by itself is enough but again very small data data pool so prob- you know at this stage i would say probably combination of strengthening and stretching is what i would do if i if my goal was to reduce or increase lordosis or kyphosis
1: so basically pilates <laughs>
0: sounds quite a bit like pilates doesn't it
1: <laughs> So here's my question. So now that you've ha- changed your tune a little bit, and you have this research that you're looking at, are you going to be? How are you going to be applying this to the education that you're providing? Not just on the podcast, but you know, like in the diploma or in the in the certificate. Like, is this going to impact the way that your slide deck?
0: I think it is. I think it is useful information for people to know. Um, and like I'd like I said, I mean, I, I you know, I would say I hold this view somewhat tentatively at the moment, but I've moved from like reasonably, you know, 80% sure it doesn't change posture to like 60% sure it does change posture. So I've made a fairly big shift there. And so I think it is useful for people to know because whilst it still seems to be the case that changing posture doesn't change pain per se, and so if your goal is to help someone get out of pain, well, changing posture is probably not the most useful or even at all useful, you know, as part of that process. Uh, but you know, people come to Pilates for other reasons besides getting out of pain, and you know, one of those is improved posture.
1: Yeah.
0: Uh, and so I think, well, if we can actually genuinely help people with that, great. Let's, you know, <laughs> let's let's do that. Yeah. So I think uh, I think, um, and I'm just kind of thinking out loud here. I think. Uh, Probably what I would – I guess what I would – what I envision is maybe a lecture that goes in the, both the certification and the diploma, both our certification program and our sort of post-grad diploma, that just – that, you know, unpacks this research in less detail than what we've just talked about. And basically just says, okay, look, we don't know for 100% certain that exercise can change posture, but it does seem it probably can. And so let's operate under that assumption because the weight of evidence seems to lean in that direction at this stage, uh, and then just much more, uh, you know, spend the rest of the the thirty minutes or whatever on like, okay, and here's how you would do that. You know, here are some example exercises to, you know, decrease thoracic kyphosis and to decrease the lumbar lordosis, for example, or to increase lumbar lordosis. I mean, we don't actually know if exercise can increase lumbar lordosis because none of these studies have looked at that. Everyone seems hell-bent on decreasing it <laughs> for some reason. Um, uh, but, uh, yeah, so I think... Um, You know, we also, I mean, we do know like changing posture doesn't change pain, right? Which says that, okay, well, if you've got pain, changing your posture is not the answer. But that also says that if you don't have pain, changing posture is not going to give you pain. So there's like, there's no reason not to change your posture. It's just the opportunity cost. If you've got pain and you want to get out of it, you could probably do more useful things than concentrating on your posture. But if that's a goal that is important to people for other reasons, there's no reason they shouldn't pursue it. And there's no reason we can't help them with it. So, yeah, I think, I think we'll include maybe some programming, uh, you know, guidelines or cheat sheets or whatever to help people with that.
1: Yeah. Well, I mean, the, the reality of the situation is apart from what, what I like to call hard science and soft science, when I was in university, the hard science would be like biology, chemistry, um, soft science, social science, anthropology, Right? Psychology, although psychology, I was a psychology major and we like to say that we're in the middle. We, we are both hard science and soft science, but the soft science side is really important. And the reality is a lot of people hold posture to be a really important social cue. You know, like if we look at the history of posture and kind of the morality of posture in the, in way back long time ago, poor posture had all was a, was a social signal. Right? Like it was a social signal. And I think today it still kind of is a social signal. And I know that, for instance, say in a job interview, you don't want to be schlumpy, <laughs> right? Or, you know, like if you're public speaking, you don't want to be schlumpy.
0: Especially not in a Pilates job interview.
1: It's true. Well, you know what's funny too? It's like people have this expectation that posture is an important part. Posture and Pilates oftentimes I think do go hand in hand. And I will tell you that. Um, The things that the clients will say to me, like I've had clients say to me just, oh, I love your posture. And I'm thinking, oh, that's a really interesting thing that you're noticing. Like, do you like my leggings? Like, (laughs) you know, (laughs) right. Or do you like my sports bra? But no, they were paying attention to my posture. So I feel like.
0: Well, I think, I mean, if anything, I think I love your posture is a much more powerful compliment than I love your leggings.
1: Oh, sure. Agreed. No, i yeah, well, especially for like, someone unless
0: you unless you made the leggings yourself.
1: No, like,
0: you know that's that's not really a compliment. It's like okay, great, whoever made your leggings was really clever, um, you know, but you made your own posture, so good right. on you.
1: No, it was a really it was it was definitely a really nice compliment, especially for you know, like I like to consider I consider myself a professional schlumper, and my you know my grandma was always like sit. Natalie stand up taller like she hated my posture. Right. So people have a, there's still a lot of Thanks, value. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Thanks, grandma. There's still a lot of value to posture. And I know a lot of people will come to Pilates because of posture. And my my clients who value posture, there are times when we're doing a difficult exercise and I'll just slip in. Can you stick with it for 20 more seconds? This is really good for your postural muscles. And let me tell you what. They will stay for the whole twenty seconds, <laughs> and that can be a
0: long twenty seconds too.
1: Twenty seconds is a long time when you're swimming. When you're doing swimming, In Pilates
0: hours—that's that's yeah, a lot
1: of. It long is a very long time. So yeah, I I think it's really interesting. I I am definitely I have been of the school that you know posture doesn't necessarily help with pain, and exercise doesn't. Imp- doesn't change posture. I, I can I can get on board with being an optimist about exercise, perhaps changing posture, and and that's great for the business because a lot of people come to Pilates wanting to stand up taller and be you know have mm-hmm. their reg, have their regal standing. So yeah.
0: Well, I think the good news is I think yeah right as of right now we probably can help them with that.
1: Cool. Thanks, Raf. Thanks for doing the research. And you know what? I got to say, I really appreciate that, um, not just as a, as a diploma student, but also just as a colleague, I think it's so cool that before you get up on stage and do your thing, you're checking your work and making sure that you're still up to date, because that doesn't always happen. We know this in, in our industry and in other industries, it doesn't happen that people check their work to see if what they're saying is actually still relevant <laughs>
0: Oh, that, you know, I think it's really important to do that. I'm glad, uh, you know, of course, I know that you appreciate that already. Otherwise, like, you wouldn't be working at Breathe if that wasn't a value <laughs> for you. That's true. But um, I think it is so important and I think what's made it easy for me, like, so basically, you know, this conversation is me saying, like, hey, I was wrong about this. You know, I, I, I've changed my mind because I was wrong. I found out I was wrong. Uh, and I don't feel any... Like there's no awkwardness for me about that because I've I, I, I'm much more I'm much more averse to being wrong and pretending I'm not <laughs> than to being wrong and and just going oh I was wrong okay now I've changed my mind now I'm right again you know yeah um like for for me to to come up here and say oh no you know, to dig deeper into the hole if I've realized I'm incorrect. And then subsequently, someone to like discover that's like, oh, hold on. There's this systematic review that came out three years ago. Like that would mortify me, you know. Um, and so it's, it's, it's interesting, like just observing my own psychology on this that like it's, you know, because a lot of the time, you know, because we follow the evidence it just has turned out to be the case. And kind of the whole premise of this podcast, Pilates Elephants, you know, like what's the elephant in the room in Pilates is the whole premise. So a lot of the time we do find ourselves taking somewhat of a contrarian stance, you know, oh, the industry does this, you know, we do that. <laughs> um, but really it's it's interesting to me to watch my own sort of psychology at work here with this change of mind process I've just been through. There's like, there's a part of me that, that is kind of disappointed that I can't take a contrarian stance on this. It's like, oh, no, dang it. I'm just going to be agreeing with, you know, everybody else in the Pilates world now. Um, and that's interesting to me just psychologically. Um, but I'd rather be right, you know, and the, the point is not to be different or contrary to everybody else. The point is to be correct as much as possible, you know, right. to, to be accurate. Um, and so, um, yeah, so this is, this is an important process.
1: No, it is. Well, and it, it models what science should be, right? Which is, it's, it's really us just trying to see if we're not wrong rather than if we're right. Right. <laughs> right.
0: And I, I'm sure that we are wrong about a lot of things still. Like, I was wrong about this last month and I didn't know it, you know. Yeah. <laughs> but, but now I know it. <laughs> yeah. So, um,
1: yes. Yeah, so, uh, so, how's this going to change the way that you, you teach? Oh my goodness. Well, um, I am just going to keep saying to my clients every time they're dying in swimming, it's really good for your posture. Keep going. You've got 20 more seconds. Stay with me. <laughs> it is actually really funny. I have been watching. Um, I, I teach a class, uh, at a local hospital and, um, these are people mostly who have multiple sclerosis. And so, some of them have a lot of medical needs. Some of them are managing a little bit better. So it's a really wide range of abilities. It's, a, it's truly an open level class for me, a lot of different abilities. But the thing that they all have in common, every single one of them, is that they just have so much grit. Um, and I love watching these particular students because they respond so well to countdowns. So I don't usually do reps. I usually do seconds. And I have a, a mean timer that I, it's a yellow, bright yellow timer that I just keep nearby. And I'm like, okay, I'm setting the timer. We've got 30 seconds here. But I do these like incremental countdowns. So, so they know I'm not cheating. And I'm like, you know, 10 more seconds, five more seconds. And they are, most of them get to a point of pretty much failure, but it, it never fails. Every time I'm like, okay, five more seconds. They like, find every last bit of energy and like hoist themselves up and like go for it. And it's just so fun to watch them. Like, you know, I don't care if people choose to work hard or not in my class. That's a personal choice. But when I do see people like really, really just working hard. It just it's just cool to watch people just find that extra bit of gas to get through. So yeah, I'm just gonna keep doing that. This is good for your posture.
0: that's part of what makes you a great coach is because in my definition, a great coach inspires people to do the things they need to do in order to become what they want to become. So, I mean, I don't know. I don't want to call you a liar, but I think that you do care when people put out effort in your class.
1: No, it's true. I mean, doesn't it make, it just makes the job so much easier when you have people who actually want to work hard. Sometimes I think to myself, why are you even here? Like, why are you even here? Well, and then maybe the reason is just because they're the coffee shop. Yeah, the coffee shop's right across the street. And, uh, you know, a lot of my clients, after they, they come to class, they will go treat themselves. The, the coffee shop, Raph, if you ever come to Seattle, do you know what a Pop-Tart is? Do you know Pop-Tart? It's gross. Um, it is like um, pie crust. Imagine pie crust, and you cut out rectangles, You have two rectangular pie crusts, and then you put like a jam filling inside, and then you squish them together, and you like push down the edges, and then you bake it. Uh, So that's a Pop-Tart, and um, you can- And you put them
0: in the toaster or something?
1: You could. You could. I don't actually know it's- I don't eat Pop-Tarts. I used to a long time ago when I was a kid, but um, they're prepackaged, and they're nasty as all get up, but- the coffee shop across the street from the studio I work at, they make beautiful homemade Pop-Tarts. So I can tell <laughs> when my clients will go after Pilates to treat themselves to coffee and a Pop-Tart, a homemade Pop-Tart. Um, and that's okay too. That is certainly a valid reason to come to Pilates, but you should come to Pilates because it's going to help you build better posture.
0: Yeah, amongst other reasons.
1: So. No, I think that's really exciting. And actually, you know, it's great because, um, yeah, uh, it seems like the Pilates industry had it right all along, right?
0: Yeah, I'd say in, uh, on this topic, yeah, they did. Yeah, That's um, great. I think there is – I mean, there are still – I guess there are still a few areas where I am glad to be able to hold a contrarian view, uh, come back by my current understanding of the evidence. Like, I think uh, – posture assessment is still highly fraught. Um, There's not good evidence that humans can accurately assess posture by eye or feel, even using a plumb line or or what have you. Uh, And there's not good evidence that posture correlates with muscle balance. So there's not good evidence that, for example, if you've got an anterior pelvic tilt, that you've got tight hip flexors or weak abs or, or whatever. In fact, we've got evidence that that's not the case. Um, so, yes, yeah, so I'm not. I think that some of the the practice that I learned when I was learning Pilates still are not true, and it's also not true. You know, my current understanding that posture is related to injury risk or or pain. So, I think all of those assumptions I still um, you know, don't don't hold with. But the core kind of foundational premise there of Pilates as, you know, improving posture, if we um, take the sort of notion of improving as being like, you know, take away kind of the sort of medical connotation of that and think of it purely as, like you said, a social kind of signal of, you know, confidence and health and, you know, vitality and all of that kind of stuff. Uh, Well, yeah, I think we can. I think we can help people with that. And I think Pilates did have that. Uh, right. You know, Mr. Pilates did have that right.
1: Yeah. Well, I think the other part, you know, like going back to some of the things that you're still concerned about or the things you don't agree with. I think for me, um, one of the things that I felt like was happening when I was learning postural assessment in my first training was that I felt, and I don't know if this is, was the intention or if it was just my own understanding of it, I felt like the purpose of learning postural assessment was to really just pick out the things that were wrong with people. And then I also felt like once I knew what was wrong with people, that it was almost my job to fix it. So I I feel like part of it is like we can't forget the the autonomy of the client. So if the client doesn't give a shit about fixing posture, we need to let that go. (laughs) I think that's the first thing is if the client doesn't care about it, if it's not bothering them, maybe they have kyphosis or whatever, then I would like to take the lead of the client. If the client says, I'm coming into Pilates because I would like better posture, I can work with that expectation. But um, I still wouldn't, I wouldn't do postural assessments and then say to a client, well, I'm so glad that you're here because we could really work on your posture. So I think that's one thing. And then the other part of it too is I still think um, I, I don't also agree with the idea that there is a moral value to good posture, bad posture. You know, I, I actually know somebody who has a congenital um, and maybe you would know what it is. It's basically the, she was born with a really high, uh, like a kyphosis, like an, I don't know what it's called. Do you know what I'm talking about? She was born that way and she looks quite.
0: Yeah. I just call it uh kyphoscoliosis and just describes the condition it doesn't describe why why it, yeah. it occurs yeah
1: she was born that way and i i think that that she struggles with her self-image and i think people who have kyphosis probably they might struggle with their with that image because we put so much moral value on it so right. um and i think yeah.
0: probably some of that is is genetic and sexual selection right so we we know that in in terms of looking at um, people that and rating people on attractiveness, we find symmetry to be very, Fun. you know, one of the things that predicts um, attractiveness. So that whether your eyes are the same size or the same height or whether your nose is crooked or, or you know, whatever it might be. So the more symmetrical someone's features are, on, on average, the more they tend to be rated as attractive. Um, and so, you know, scoliosis and kyphosis and whatever sort of in my view probably sort of fall into that category in terms of people feel self-conscious about them um because it's like yeah it's probably like people feel self-conscious if they've got like their nose is super crooked or whatever you know for the same reason it's just kind of like it's not what we naturally find attractive in people
1: well and i feel like you know um when I think of people who have um, a lot of kyphosis too, that is also a sign of aging. And I think some mm-hmm. people struggle with that too. Right. Um, and
0: it can be a, design, a sign of illness as well. Like so yeah. Sherman's disease, uh, osteoporosis, you know, these things can result in a hyperkyphosis, um, which, you know, is like I can't think of any like situation where having a really uh, pronounced kyphosis would be a sign of like, Vigorous physical health, (laughs) where it can be a sign, it's not always a sign, it could just be neutral, but it's it can more often than not be a sign that there's some problem, um, some whether it's a genetic issue or you know, osteoporotic or or whatever it might be. Um, I I think there's, I, I just before we finish up here, that like I would like to sort of disentangle or spend a little bit more time just talking through, you know, what we alluded to a minute ago about so the posture assessment and, you know, unpacking really, and this is kind of interpretation, but, you know, given what I said a, a minute ago about how we we do have research showing that there's not a correlation between posture and muscle balance. So the fact that someone's got an anterior pelvic tilt or a posterior pelvic tilt or whatever doesn't tell you anything useful about which muscles are long or short or weak or strong. But strengthening those muscles or stretching them can change posture. And so, you know, this, you know, so how can these two facts, you know, coexist? It seems, you know, um, they seem sort of opposed. And I guess my interpretation of that is uh, possibly... That, uh, and again, this is speculative, but it might be that, okay, posture isn't caused by muscle imbalances, and therefore, like, correcting muscle imbalances doesn't necessarily change the posture. But maybe it's just the combination of, like, just practicing the posture. <laughs> like, when you're doing those strengthening exercises, you actually just become more aware of your posture, <laughs> and you can't, like, you just practicing using those muscles more and practicing standing up straight or sitting up straight. And maybe it's just, so it's not the fact that the muscle got stronger. That's actually important. Maybe it's just the practice, the neurological, the the skill component, you know, the motor control component. So maybe there's, you know, that is a significant thing. Uh, Or maybe there is some contribution of the strengthening and the stretching, but that there's no kind of absolute value of like, Uh, you know, if your hip flexors are less than X, Y, Z length, then you will have an anterior pelvic tilt. It's like, well, you can be a gymnast who can do a 200 degree split and still have an anterior pelvic tilt. And we know this is true. (laughs) Um, And so, yeah, so it seems to me like there's kind of, that's an area of uncertainty that we've probably just got to get comfortable with living in for at least for the next few years until further research sort of elucidates the mechanisms. Yeah. But I wonder what your, what you think about that and how you would, how you would articulate that to a student maybe who came to you and said like, okay, great. Well now we're we're strengthening someone's back extensor muscles and stretching their abs to reduce their kyphosis. So it's like, does that mean they had weak back extensors and tight abs and Yeah. How would you kind of go, go about that?
1: Oh, I don't even know. I don't even know. I don't know that I would touch it. I'm like, I would just say, I don't know. (laughs) I don't know. Here's what I do want to know. I want to know, you know, those guards that, that stand at the unknown. So the, the tomb of the unknown soldier, or they guard Buckingham palace. I want to know what their fitness routine is because here's what I know. I know that if I were to just be in perfect posture, even if I took breaks, that would absolutely kill me after a certain number of hours because I believe, my belief is that uh, slumping is so much more efficient in my body than it is standing up straight or sitting up straight. I have like a bolster right here so that I can lean back and talk to you. Um, So I want to know those people who have, they have good posture, great posture for a living we to get them on the podcast because I want to know what their secret is because I would be dying inside. I would never take that job, not for all the tea in China.
0: Yeah, that's a fascinating question. And I, I've thought about that on occasion too. Um, I guess my guess would be it's a combination of they will, you don't get into that role. I mean, that must be a highly honored position. If you're guarding Buckingham Palace, right, you must be not the, you know, sort of, dullest knife in the drawer when it comes to being a soldier like you must be like one of the elite and so all right, part of that you know one small part of that would be like okay having great posture so you wouldn't get this, the people that slump and slouch around the parade ground you know being offered the opportunity to stand outside <laughs> you know, Bucking Palace so, so there's probably some degree of just genetic selection in that it's like well the people with the straightest posture are the ones who get offered the job and then I reckon possibly second it's just training Right. So I can imagine standing there after five minutes, my back would be killing me, you know, but then on day three, you might go 10 minutes on day five, you might go 20 minutes before it starts killing you. And by the time you have been doing it two years, you could stand there for six hours and, you know, it's like the woman that holds the world record for the plank, it's like eight hours in a plank, you know. Just that's just inconceivable. I mean, for me, after like forty five seconds, I'm like, "Holy crap! This is terrible. I, I hate it. Can we stop now?" You know, she but she's got eight hours. You know, so it's like I think you just train it.
1: Sure. You know? Absolutely. But going back to your original question, how would I respond to my client? This is how we all respond. We say, "I don't know. Go ask Raph." That's what we would. That's what I would say.
0: <laughs> that's why I get so many of those questions. <laughs> yeah, in Slack. that's
1: exactly why. That's exactly why. I'm not even lying. We all say it. Just go ask Raf. Heath says it too. I'm going to throw Heath under the bus. I've heard him say it.
0: Heath says it. I mean, I don't know why you say it, but I know, I, I and I've never talked to Heath about this, but I know Heath knows the answer to these things. He's just saving himself time, so I, I have to make a little video instead of him. I mean, I love doing it, but, um, yeah, I think he's just being economical with his time.
1: Yeah, no but it's I think I hope that you love doing all that um, research on on Google. I hope you love it because we are sending those people to you and you seem like you love it and you are a walking encyclopedia at this point. So I just defer those anatomy questions and biomechanical questions to you.
0: Um, yeah, I do love it. What I love about it is it it feels to me like a real chance to connect with the students in an important way that actually adds a lot of value to them, and we have such a beautiful you know community inside of Slack where people will ask questions and they feel comfortable to ask you know what might feel like basic questions or you know silly questions or whatever, and there are no silly questions, but that I can give them a, like a one or two or five minute video of me just going, "Oh, let's look that up, and here's this muscle or what does this research paper say or or whatever." And it feels like that's a service that I can provide for them that they wouldn't get from me on Instagram or even on this podcast that's a very like they'll say, "Oh, my mum has this condition and she has pain here. What should I do sort of thing and and so I can you know I mean obviously I can't give them a specific th- thing for their mum if they're on the other side of the world, and all I know is one sentence about what's going on, but I can look up the condition and and look at talk about the anatomy and the research and whatever uh and so yeah it feels like that is a much more personalized thing that i'm able to do for people inside of our community and i love doing them. i reckon i spend most days like 45 minutes to an hour you know making little vid- five minute videos for students answering their questions about everything from like how many reformers should i have in my studio to you know what's the pez arenas <laughs>
1: Ooh, I love that word. See, my brain just said a little. I love that word. <laughs> I will literally wake up in the morning with that word on my mind. That is how much I love that word.
0: Maybe you need to create some kind of artwork, whether it's a, a poem, a song, a bit of a painting, something, Pez Ansarenus.
1: No, I think I need to get a cat so that I can say it every day, multiple times a day. That's going to be the name of my kit, my new kitten. <laughs> Yeah, that's that's what I'm going to do. No, it's a great service that you provide, I think, for all the reasons that you said. Um, it makes people feel so cared for and heard that you're able to address them. And it's also really nice because it's public. We're talking about, for those of you who have no idea what we're talking about, um, <clears throat> Every we have a Slack channel and our students post questions and Raf usually does a little video response. And it's just really fun because... You directly address the student, but also it's available to everybody else. And either someone had the same question and they're like, oh, that's, I had that question. Or somebody thought, I, I never heard of that before. And this is just really nice information to know. So yeah, it's great.
0: So um, feels like we've pretty much covered posture. I mean, there's, there's more we could talk about, but I feel like we've we've come to the, the end of our conversation today. Is there anything you feel like we've missed?
1: No. Just sit up tall when you're with grandma and when you're in a job interview. If your clients want to come to you for posture, then have them do swimming and pulling straps.
0: Swimming and pulling straps (laughs) and strengthen those lower abs. There you go. Thanks, Natalie.
1: Thanks, Raph. Good talk.
0: After two exercise science degrees and over a decade and a half of reading research daily, I've condensed all the current science on rehab into a program called the Clinical Exercise Specialist Rehabilitation. Inside the program, I'll teach you to do three things. One, deeply understand how the body works. Two, confidently and expertly rehab literally any client. And three, get results for your clients. So ultimately, your clients tell their friends and you become known as the go-to expert